Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, September 17th. This is episode 2733 of the Survival Podcast, and we're going to have a show today on Bantam Chickens. Yep, Bantam is in little chickens, big voice, big booming voice, baby chickens. That's kind of the reason I did that is. Bantams don't really have a big, booming voice, but they have a big, booming personality. They're really cool birds. And what sparked today's show was yesterday I published um, a video, just a simple little video, like seven, eight minutes long, and it was the progress of my little bantam chicken flock. These little guys are a little mixed little mixed breed group, and they're uh, doing really well. They're, They're finally now out of their little chicken tractor cage, and... Um, they're living in the chicken house and they're venturing out very tentatively. You know, they're little bitty birds. They only go a little bit out from the coop and then they go back in and they'll be out playing around in the, the weeds and all. And a crow will call out in the field, caw, caw, and they run in their little house and they hide and then they look back out. And they're just in that stage right now. They're about seven, eight weeks old. And since they're bantams, they're, you know, they're little when they're adults. They're really little when they're babies. And so I put this video out, and somebody asked a question. And the question was, why bantams and not full-size chickens? They're small. They lay small eggs. I would think that they would be best for someone with limited space. And that kind of comes from two angles. It's a total reasonable question. It wasn't one of these like, oh, you're an idiot. Why'd you ask that question? It was a totally reasonable question. One angle is, is it's reality. They do lay smaller eggs, and they are good for some with limited space. Uh, and MySpace isn't limited, so why would I do Bantam Chickens? But the other angle, though, is I think there's a lack of understanding of the inherent value of these small birds beyond hiding a flock of uh, chickens away from HOA Karen and her ilk. They, they just have a lot going for them. And it made me realize something. I've talked about Bantams before. But I've never done an entire episode on Bantam Chickens. 2,700 episodes, over 12 years, and the little chicken has never had a single episode dedicated to it. That just doesn't seem right, so we're going to fix that today. And if you're not even usually in on the uh, the livestock shows, I think you'll enjoy today. I think I'll, I'll be able to make a, a case for you that even if you don't want to do this now, maybe you want to do it in the future, and it's a good thing to be thinking about. Before we do that, let's get with it, on with a quote of the day today. <clears throat> and uh, usually a quote of the day, I, I find some really well-known person, you know, uh, some sort of philosopher or politician or something from the past. And uh, today, this is my quote. And I made my own little picture of it for it to go into the uh, subject line. But I was thinking about these Bantam chickens and the concept that bigger is better. And what I found, I was like, you know what was big? 80s cell phones. I found this picture of a dude, you know, dialing on a 80s style brick cell phone. And my quote was, if bigger was always better, we'd all still be using 80s style cell phones. And I know you might, but let me, you know, to be fair, an 80s cell phone didn't, you know, stream YouTube videos and do all that shit. Yeah, but that's what, I mean, 
Do you see people walking around with a tablet strapped to their ass, you know? Like bigger screen, bigger everything. Haven't we actually seen cell phones go the whole way in both directions? Like they were giant, and then it was how small can we make them? I remember one of my first cell phones, it might have been the first one I ever owned, um, was a little flip phone. And if anything, it was too small because it was a lot easier to misplace and lose. And then we kind of like the Motorola Razor, if you think about it, as old as the Razor is, it was a flip phone. But when you opened up a Razor, and I think that's a phone from like 2002, they kind of hit it at the sweet spot of about the right size when it was opened. Because uh, your average normal, not plus, but your normal iPhone, a lot of your Android phones, etc. today, they're right about that size. And we found a size that worked best for the most people. I think with chickens, what we can do is find the size that works best for us. And that's what I want to come at today uh, and talk about the positives and some of the negatives. But I want to start out with the positives and negatives of livestock in general. Going to the point where, you know, we're not just going to have a cat or a dog in the house. We're going to have something that's, it's even if it's pet-like in some ways, it's not, it's not really a pet. It doesn't cuddle up on the couch with us. It doesn't sleep at the foot of our bed. And it has a function. Like, yeah, your dog might defend your property and what have you, but, you know, that's kind of a byproduct. The, the chief motivation when we get chickens or ducks or cows or pigs or anything is they we want them to do something and when it comes to chickens there's a lot of things that they can do beyond just giving us eggs they can process waste etc and that's all good and well but it doesn't come without some level of a consequence in our life it, 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 everything that you you add to your life has both negatives and positives and if we start off with that at kind of the macro level like, what is the impact of having critters in our life on us? Then we can actually design them into our lives, and we can make the best choice of the design elements. So understand that in this case, the chicken, and in particular if we go with bantams, the bantam chicken is not just a critter on the homestead. It's an element of choice within the design. So let's start off again. And I, I'm trying to make this apply to livestock in general. Positives. They're fun. And it's entertaining. You know, and it's not just chickens that are that way. I love watching my ducks run around, especially those kind of goofy-looking runner ducks. Right? You can get more entertainment value sometimes out of your critters than you can out of the TV, I say, more often than not, especially once the weather turns nice. Right now it's beautiful out. I don't want to be working today, I'll be honest with you. I want to sit out on my porch right now and watch those little, little lunatic ducks run around and play. Um, you get food production. All right, so we do get food production from livestock, and that can come in the form of some sort of byproduct like an egg or milk, or it can come in the, the form of we're going to eat our friends. I mean, it's something we have to really realize. Like when, you're, when you talk about meat production, you're talking about some levels of eating your friends. And it, it, it can be difficult, but it is something and a reason that we raise animals. And it's, it's why I prefer to, if I'm going to raise uh, meat chickens, to raise meat chickens. That's what their purpose is. Um, I might consume some coals or whatever, but I, I don't really want to be using my everyday flock as a meat source. It, it's more of like we've gotten to a point now where we need to replace some birds and 
the the right thing to do to honor that bird's life is to consume it rather than you than make it waste, right? Um, you get waste processing and conversion, and you get waste production that's convertible. So what I'm saying is animals poop, and almost all of our livestock poop in some form that we can then process and maybe even use them in some level of processing it themselves to produce compost and have fertility aid on our property. And we have potential income. Now, there's probably more positives, but those are the four most common positives. There's some level of income. We can sell eggs. And even if we're not making income from the standpoint of enough money to pay for everything or make a big profit, if we can have a small flock and we can sell some eggs to some friends and family, and then we can pay mostly for our food, we reduce the cost of our own consumption to ourselves, right? Or maybe we can come up with other ways to actually make a, a little bit of money, a little pocket money, a little bit of fence post money off of our livestock. Or some people actually get really good at it, and they're able to make a, a significant amount of income. But this does not come for free. Everything we do in our lives, everything we choose to add to our lives, it increases our complexity of our lives, might add a lot of value, but it also takes something away. With negatives, with livestock, you have input expenses and sourcing. So not only do we need to make sure we have a place, I mean, you start looking at adding up costs, like a chicken house or something like that. Unless you have a shed that's already there you can convert or something, even if you hand-build it, it can be kind of expensive. Um, but it, it, it's an ongoing thing. They, you, you, most people are not going to be able to have a piece of property that provides 100% of the feed for your animals. You're going to have to buy some food, and, and there's other expenses that go along with it. And then there's the sourcing. And what I mean by that is you, you, know, you have to go get it or you have to have it delivered. You have to store feed. I mean, there is a piece of all this that is something else you have to do. Husbandry requires time. So no matter how much we automate into this, not only do we have this additional food and things like that, we have to you know, keep an eye on them. We have to watch for diseases or injuries. We have to worry about predators. We have to make sure they're not getting into places or eating things they're not supposed to eat. Uh, having chickens is, is kind of like having toddlers running all over your property. Who knows what they can get themselves into trouble with. Um, it makes travel harder. If you like to travel a lot, unless you can really design your whole life around this to the point where either there's always somebody available to take care of them, maybe you design some sort of community in your property, um, where when you're gone, someone else is there, you design a lot of automation so it's easy for a neighbor to take care of. In the end, it, it, it's going to make your travel harder. So if you're the kind of person who likes to take off six, eight times a year, it may not be the right thing for you, or you have to be really spot on with how you design the whole system. It has an impact on your land. This can definitely be a positive, but it also can be a negative. When we first got here, we got into chicken collecting. It wasn't chicken keeping, it was chicken collecting. Oh, that's a cool chicken, let's get that chicken, let's get this chicken, let's get that chicken. Next thing we know, we had these chickens running all over, and I'm trying to grow trees and putting these berms in, and the chickens are pulling all the soil off of the tree roots and tearing everything up and messing everything up. And, and while we were able to eventually pare those down, switch to ducks, and harness the movement, it had a negative impact. At the same time, it was having a positive impact. So you're going to have an impact on your land, and maybe not just from a straight fertility standpoint. Like if you don't design things right, then you have chickens crapping on your porch or like the chairs on your porch. Maybe 
maybe without noticing it, and you sit down and you put your hand into something that you would prefer not to. Um, so they have an impact on your land, and when I say that, I mean your property, all of your property. Chickens don't really differentiate much between the grass, your porch, your chair, you know, your your your, your lounge equipment, your your grill. I've got a picture of a turkey sitting up on top of my grill, going, "I don't think you guys understand what that thing is, right?" Um, so they have that impact now. If we don't really think about how we handle this, they can also have an impact on our neighbors. They can have an impact on our neighbors because our neighbors are Karens, and, and then unless they have power, I don't really care. So if somebody doesn't like the fact that I have animals just because they don't like it, they can go, they can go screw it. Right? Especially where I live. I'm far enough away that if you moved here next to me, you wanted to. right? Um, but I also try to be a good neighbor. So if my birds were jumping the fence and tearing up my neighbor's gardens, that would be a problem. If I had really loud roosters that were crowing at 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't think that would be fair to my neighbors. Right now, you moved out in the country hearing a rooster crow in the morning, that's, that's a thing. But if I had a problem rooster that was making too much noise, I either need to figure out how to deal with that so that it doesn't cause a problem, or that rooster has to go off to rooster college. We call that the crock pot, right? Um, so I do have to think about the impact that my animals have on my neighbors. I mean, that principle is even biblical if you come from that school of thought. There's the, the thing about it's not, it's not your neighbor's responsibility to fence his animals out of your field, but your responsibility to fence your animals into your field, right? Um, so we have to think about that. And cold and hot weather concerns. So this goes in with husbandry, but it goes to a different level. When I have to get water to my flock, a frozen pipe is a bigger problem. When, if it gets really, really hot, if I don't provide some sort of relief, my animals will die, it's a problem. Now, when you start going with free range, even coop and run, giving them some ability to move around and thermoregulate, it becomes less of an issue. But there's times like brooding. Like I was just brooding these baby chickens in the very hot part of the summer. Thinking back on it, it would have probably been a better idea for me to get them in the spring. But I didn't, and I decided I wanted them, so I had to do that. So I had to think about that. So I, you know, I had to take things into consideration. So I took a couple of big pieces of plywood, and I put it on top of their chicken tractor. That gave them 100% shade. But I had to remember to go out there once a day and move the, the sideboard from the back side on the east to the, to the west side on the other side to, because the sun would come in low and then blaze heat on them, and they can't get anywhere. And, I, you know, I went out a couple times a day, and we just see these big bottles full of water and throw them in the deep freezer. And we'll put a, you know, a frozen bottle in there with them, and they're all sitting on it, putting their butt up against it and stuff and cooling off. It wasn't hard, but you have to think that way. And so when we're designing our lives around animals, and if we're going to put animals in our lives, we should be designing them into our lives and our lives around them. That way we don't hate ourselves. Because I've seen so many people that get into animals over their head, um, and they, they they end up hating their lives. They end up getting rid of all of them, and they end up, you know, they're people that probably could have really had a, a great experience, but because they didn't think at a design level, and because they went too far, too fast, too much, they ended up unhappy. So, with all that in mind, let's let's think about the beauty of Bantams, because there's a lot that goes into this. So, like, your kids, if you have children, how they interact with, with animals, etc., is all important. And I don't want my four-year-old granddaughter 
around aggressive geese. She probably needs to be a little bit older, right? Old enough to be able to understand how to deal with them. I definitely don't want either of my kids around animals that can really hurt them yet. And if we're going to have any type of thing like that ever in our... We, we probably won't here, but if we were, things like a horse, then then there has to be a real education that goes along with you know, having horses or pigs. Right? Those are both examples of animals that can be really dangerous. And large chickens, especially roosters, can really hurt you. I mean, they can hurt an adult, but... You know, an eight, nine pound aggressive rooster can really hurt a four year old kid bad. So we got to think about all of that as we go into the beauty of bantams. Number one is great personalities. These are little birds with big booming personalities. They really do. And I, I just feel like they, they, for some reason, they do seem to have more of a personality than. Uh, conventional size birds. Now, I, I, I do have to say, in my experience so far, their roosters tend to be a little bit more aggressive. But the aggression seems to generally come from two areas. And one is a lot easier to deal with with a Napoleon rooster than the other. And, and, and one is pure Napoleon complex, where like they're paranoid because they're little. And they're just mean little bitches. And it's, it's, it's messed up because... The hens are inevitably the sweetest little birds you'll ever get, and the roosters tend to be more aggressive in my experience. But that's not always the case. I've had gentle roosters that were bantam roosters, and I've had gentle roosters that were full-size roosters, and I've had mean full-size roosters. I've had roosters when I had a big flock of chickens, and I could have more than one rooster. I went out and let the chickens out, and they're all running out past me, and one of the young roosters stops and spurs me in the, in the leg. Guess where he goes? Upside down in a tree. I don't do aggressive roosters. So, yeah, they have these great personalities. They're very affectionate birds as far as a chicken can be. They're, they're more pet-like in a lot of ways. Yes, you can have aggressive roosters, but I don't see that as a huge problem because you can have aggressive roosters no matter what. Uh, next, the small eggs thing. I actually think the small egg thing is a really good thing. As long as you just figure out, well, how much egg do I need? So how big does my flock need to be to provide me this much egg? It, then it doesn't matter. If I'm making scrambled eggs and I use four instead of two, does it matter? It, it doesn't. They taste the same. They do the same. It's, it's all the same. But actually, small eggs, if we're doing something like a sunny side up or an over easy, I much prefer to cook them that way than I do a full-size egg. They're, they're easy to flip without... You know, if you fl I don't really flip eggs, but if you flip them, they're easier to flip without breaking. They're easier to get out of the pan without breaking. They're just and they're easier to get to where you cook, where that yolk is still nice and runny, and that white doesn't. Because I runny white and me do not go together. No, I don't. I love a runny yolk. I do not want runny. I want that when you like got an egg and it's over easy or it's um, it's sunny side up. And you think it's done, and you take it out of the pan, and it's got that little bit of jelly white around the edge of the... Uh-uh. Like, I, I'm a guy, I eat almost anything. I eat octopus. I eat sushi. I eat sashimi. Like, I am not squeamish. But white, runny, runny, runny white egg, not nice. Not good. I don't like it. It is much easier to get that egg to cook perfectly without overcooking that yolk. It's just, just wonderful. Two eggs make one egg for larger needs. So it, to me, it just it doesn't really 
change the calculus. You just have a few more birds, um, which is actually easier to do. And, and that's another thing I think is a real advantage. You can have more, so hence you have a greater impact of two is one, one is none. Here's what I mean. If you have four hens or you have eight bantam hens and one of your hens dies, you either have three hens or seven. And that means you just have more redundancy in your flock. You have more genetics with which you can produce more birds. If you have a bird that's a problem and you need to eliminate it, you still have more left. And I find that chickens tend to get in less trouble when you have more of them, up to a point. So when you have 100, that's totally different. But I find that a flock that's like 10 strong, it seems to be less looking for shit to mess up than it does if you have three or four. Three or four are bored. They're going to go find something to do. Eight or ten of them have something to do with each other. It's just like kids. You get a right-sized group of kids together. They get along. They kind of see to their own needs. You get one or two, they're a lot more likely to be bored. You get 50 together, you have a problem. But I do think it makes it easier to have more birds, hence greater diversity, um, hence greater resiliency, and hence greater entertainment. And if you like to have multiple breeds and stuff like that, it gives you more flexibility with doing that. Because eight are going to eat about what four would eat when it comes to feeding them. So that's really, really valuable. Um, you can do it with any chicken, but I find bantams are totally at peace with a coop and run arrangement. Where larger birds seem to really, really want to get out and about, as long as you make sure that they have a good environmental control, with their thermal regulation, they can get in the sun, they can get out of the sun at all times. They have both decisions that they can make. They can go back in the coop, they can be out of the coop, they have a good supply of food and water. Bantams seem, when you put them in a coop and run arrangement, to just be like, okay, this is where I live, I'm good with it. And, and again, more so uh, than, than larger birds. And even if you do the same eight versus four, they seem to make better use of the space. So even if you double the number of birds in the same size space, it seems like they, they tend to feel like they have more room. And, and they also seem to get along better in that situation. Since there's less of a, a hen pecking order and things like that, uh, if we go with that approach. And to me, that just makes things really nice. And they're very well suited to being let out in the evening from a coop and run and only being let out in the evening. And I think for a lot of people, because like I said, it's important that I, again, I don't care about HOA Karen. That's why I won't live in an HOA. And I don't care about HOA Karen that wishes she lived in an HOA that doesn't live in an HOA that wants to act like she does. I, I'm not trying to make her happy. I do not want to be, if I'm back in the old days when I used to go to a job, get up in the morning, go out, let the chickens out, feed them, water them, whatever, leave, be gone all day, come home, and the chickens have spent all day tearing up Karen's marigolds, because even if she's a Karen, she's right. I have no business having my bear, my birds tearing up her marigolds, right? So the, the solution there, if I don't want birds that are always cooped up, is to put the birds in their run and let them have access to their run. And when I come home that night and I have a beer in the backyard, I have chicken, chicken television, and I open up their run, and I sit in the back, and I keep an eye on them, clip their wings, and chickens learn faster than people think. They do have that little bird pea brain, but 
you know, if, if every time they get up on a, a fence, like they're going to try to get over it, they get kind of a gentle smackdown or sprayed with a hose or something, pretty soon they realize, like, okay, this is, this is my area. And birds that are kept in a coop and run, when they're let out of that run, that area that you're given, it's so much bigger, it seems huge to them. They don't really have a need to go beyond it. And if whenever they think about going beyond it, something negative happens, they get very home to that area. And bantams seem more prone to this than your full-size birds. So I think that if, you, if that's what you want, if you want, I want to coop and run, and I want to come home, I want to let them out. And I want them to kind of be somewhat trained to not exceed their, low, you know, their area. They're a great bird to do it with. I would say if you have a big yard, even if it's not fenced, that's often the case. If you, you know, you just got to learn to time it. You got to figure out like how close to nighttime do I need to be before it will naturally limit how brave they are. And if you start, you know, like if you start a routine with them too, like you let them out and you feed them. And let's say you go sit by your porch on your deck or whatever, and you feed them over there. You feed them a treat. Well, then they get to be, when the human comes at night, he or she gives me special yummies over here. And I'm going to go hang out over here with my human that gives me my special yummies. And they don't really have a desire to go anywhere. They don't, they're not very adventurous. I would say that when you look at a bantam compared to a standard breed chicken, It's very much like looking at a Muscovy duck versus a Mallard breed duck. When I had Muscovies with my duck flock, the Mallard breeds cover the whole property. There's times when, like, you're sitting on the back porch and here comes the flock. There they go. And 20 minutes later, here they come again, the same direction. They've gone all the way around and they're wandering. And those Muscovies would hang out under the pool deck all day long. They would barely go anywhere. Wherever you put the water, they'd go that far and that far only. And that's I'm not saying all the time, but a lot of a lot of the personality of mantums is a lot more like that. Um, next, they uh, they're they're happy to process your waste. They do a good job with you know a compost pit or what have you, um, and they get very they get very routine oriented. Like I'm talking about with letting them out of the coop and into the run and then out of the run into the yard for the last couple of hours of the day. So if you If you have a, a thing where I come out every morning and I, I add to the compost pit, and the compost pit is in the run or their free range and they know where it is, they'll be very quick to kind of pick up on, hey, here comes the human, the door open, the water's refilled, the, the nummies went in the compost pit, let's go in there and play with it. Um, they do have lots of income potential, though probably not what you would think. You can make some money on the eggs, and you actually, believe it or not, may be able to sell those little bitty bantam eggs for more than a great big chicken egg. And you might like, how the hell does that work? Well, one thing we learned about chickens really fast, when you live a place where people can have chickens, everybody has chickens, they all lay eggs, and everybody makes more eggs than they use. So everybody wants to sell them. So it's not uncommon to see chicken eggs selling for two, three bucks a dozen. And unless you're going to go the premium route, sell a premium feed, and really market your product as above the average. Because I would not sell chicken eggs for less than $6 a dozen. I just wouldn't. Full-size birds I'm talking about here. I just wouldn't do it. And I would just, if, if no one will buy them, I'll feed them to the dogs before I'd sell them for less than that. They're worth more money to me as dog food than they are for $3, $2 a dozen. I'm not even, it's not worth my time to put them in a carton for $2 a dozen. But if you take a cue from a good marketer like John Dowie, 
who had sells duck eggs. He sells his duck eggs for like I think eight or ten dollars a dozen or something like that. But he sells his mallard eggs, which are little blue eggs, as kids' eggs. Six for six dollars. Smaller egg, more money, because he's selling it as a unique, niche little thing. Well, I don't know that you could do that, but I bet you could sell a half dozen of these little kids' eggs for three bucks. That's six dollars a dozen for baby eggs. Especially if you thought about it and you did something like, okay, you're going to have Bantam Wells Summers, because they're like this dark brown, chocolate-looking, speckled egg. They're really cool-looking. Or Easter Eggers or something like that that produces like a greenish, bluish egg. Like... You'd have to think about that. But the real way I think you can make money on these things is by selling babies of known breeds and known sex. And bantams are incredibly popular. They're incredibly popular. Whenever I go to like a feed store or whatever, they always have more bantam in stock than they do standard size chickens. And they're always mixed breed. No idea what they are, and they're always unsexed. And that's a negative we'll go ahead and cover now. Um, I have found it very difficult to order bantams online sexed, and I've never seen them in a feed store sexed. So when it comes to making money, we take that negative and turn it around to a positive, in that if I have a rooster of a known variety and hens of a known variety, And they're the same breed. And I know the babies are that breed. So I can now sell my neighbors and my friends and people on Craigslist, you know, well summer bantams. You know, or English game, uh, game, uh, gamecock bantams, or Polish, or silkies, or, you know, um, speckled cochin, or, or whatever. I can, I can find a breed or two that I absolutely know there's a market for in my area, and I can stick to those and sell those. I, and there's ways I can do this without giving up all my freedom. So if I pick a breed with a highly identifiable egg, okay, so let's say Well Summer. So I pick Well Summer Bantams as a breed and an egg that I want to produce and a bird I want to produce. But I want some Polish, I want some Cochins, I want some Silkies, I want... I want a, a, a little flock, a dozen little cool-looking chickens running around and, and a rooster. So then all I have to do is make sure that the, the, the breed that I've picked to produce has a distinctive egg. And I have one rooster. Well, now I know that all those well-summer eggs are well-summer purebred animals. And I just eat the other eggs and I only incubate or give the birds... Those, those eggs to incubate. And, and that, is, that, that is a really cool thing because now I can say, here they are. And the other thing I can do then is I can raise them till they're just old enough to know the sex. And when somebody's thinking about going down to Tractor Supply or Atwoods or something like that to get birds, they don't, a lot of these people don't want any roosters. And I know that because I end up with roosters thrown over my fence because people end up with roosters and they don't know what to do with them and they're not willing to take responsibility for them. Or they want a flock with a rooster, but they only want a rooster and three or four hens, and it's almost impossible to buy. Known breed, known sex. So now I can sell to that. Now, I'm not going to make a fortune on this, but it gives me a very marketable product that people are willing to pay a premium for. 
And because they're little and they eat less, it costs me less to raise them to, like, let's say, six weeks of age. And then you can get highly specialized, and some breeds actually sell for a lot. They're expensive, especially from, like, prize stock. Breed, and I'm not getting into that, but that's potential, too. Uh, next, and I think the, the biggest advantage of bantams for people, including people that keep ducks, keep full-size chickens, etc., they're broody. And they're all somewhat broody. So bantams in general tend to be broody. Not, not every bantam breed, but most of them tend to be broody. But you're two that you're almost guaranteed that if you build a flock on them are going to want to incubate eggs for you are silkies and cochins. Silkies are silk. I mean, you look at that, it's a silky. You know? And they're, they're really cool. They have black skin. Um, they, they're kind of goofy looking, but, boy, they're just, they're like brooding machines. And cochins, in my experience, tend to be that way as well. Cochins are the ones with the feathered feet. You know, so they have the little feathers on their feet. They're a little cool looking. I have a little red cochin. She's my last from my old flock that's still around. And uh, she's trying to teach the babies the way of the chicken, and the babies don't want to come out yet. Um, but they're incredibly broody. And what this lets you do is I can take one of my broody chickens and decide, you know what, I want, I want four new ducks in my flock. So maybe I'll take eight eggs and put them under her, and her little butt can just barely cover those eight eggs, but she'll do it. And with, you know, fertility and all, I might end up with six that hatch or five that hatch. And then hopefully I'll get four that are females and a male that I can call or maybe a male that I can replace as a new drake. But now I don't have to do any work. That little bitty chicken will watch those ducklings get bigger than her in about five weeks and look at them all confused, but she will mother them until they don't need her anymore. She'll take care. She won't just think about them. She'll take care of them. Same thing with if I have a full-size chicken flock and I have a few bantams. They're the ones that are going to want to go broody. If I want more birds, I can put eggs under them. And if I want to just make more bantams, I can put eggs under them. And even if I'm breeding some sort of a kind of exotic bantam, if that a lot of the more exotic ones are the ones that don't want to go broody for you. So if we have some cochins or some silkies or whatever, when they go broody, we can take those well summer eggs, pop them under the coach, and she doesn't care. She just knows she has eggs. The, the only downside of the broody thing is they can get so broody that if you don't let them brood something, they'll die. We had two, we lost two this year, and I'm pretty sure one of them died because she was unsuccessful at brooding duck eggs. And we gave her some, and she took a real, she chose a really bad place to do it, and we tried to move her, and she went back there, and I just think she wore herself out. So it's, it's a good idea if you're gonna keep bantams to have something that they can actually brood. They are so hardwired to make babies that they're going to want to do it. And if you can't do it, you don't want to do it, then I would stick. I would go away from your traditionally highly broody breeds. You're, you're kind of more light. Your porcelains, your leghorns, things like that, um, you, some of your more exotics are not, they don't tend to be that broody. If you don't want brooding, I would stay away from your, again, your cochins and your silkies. Brahmas are pretty broody, too. They kind of look like a cochin to me in a lot of ways. Um, but those two are just very broody, so that's a good thing if you want it. And they are well-suited to partial automation of their care. So I, I want you to kind of think about this scenario. Coop and run in a small property. We put in something like the secure coop do door 
which is made by a member of this audience, or we, you know, we come up with our own coupe door. We put in a great big hopper feeder inside the run with something so that when it rains, it doesn't ruin the food. We put in a pretty big uh, reservoir for water. And what do we have to do? We have to pick the eggs up every day. And we have a timeline to how long the water and the food lasts that we have to replace it. We probably have to clean the water and clean the food apparatus once in a while if it gets kind of funky. We got to add some litter to the coop, litter to the run maybe. But if you filled everything up, you could probably leave for a week and do nothing. And maybe it's a good idea to have a neighbor come peek and check and make sure everything's okay. But you know, just keep the Karen keep the eggs for this week or whatever, right? Um, but in general, they should be fine. They should be fine. If we wanted to go to another level, we could even put a door on a on a separate timer on the on the run that lets them out in the yard and closes at a certain time when they come back in. And they'll quickly figure out that door closes and I need to get home before that happens. We could even sweeten the deal. We could take something like a, a small deer feeder, maybe put a deflector on it so it doesn't throw too far, put something that's considered a super chicken nummy in it, put that in the run, coop opens in the morning, run is accessed all day long, run opens for the last two hours of the day. you got to have kind of a timer that's an intelligent timer, right, because it can't stay the same time because the days get shorter. Maybe we have to reprogram it once a month or whatever, real easy to do. Thing opens. About 15 minutes before that door closes, feeder goes off. Ding, 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 ding. The nummies go on the ground. Everybody runs back in the, in the, oh, it's nummy time. Back in the coop to eat the nummies. A little bit later, run closes. A little bit later, door closes. Like, I love my ducks. They are not obedient like that. They are not that programmable in their behavior and their mindset. When I go out at night to close the coop, half of them are in the coop, half of them are out of the coop. When they see me coming, they all go in the coop. They're very trainable, but they're more trainable to do what you want them to do than what technology wants them to do. If you had an automated door, I think, for my duck coop right now, odds are if I set it to close it two, three hours after dark, there'd still be some of them stuck outside. Chickens, man, once they know that's where the roost is, they go home at night. So, they, again, ducks have things you can do as far as managing them that are easier to do than chickens. But when it comes to, like, their innate behavior, it's more conducive to this type of environment. The downside. Um, coals are small. So, with your full-size birds, even though, you know, here's my thing. I'm not big on dual-purpose birds. Um You might be able to find a good dual-purpose goat or pig or even a cow. But you're not. I haven't yet to see a truly good dual-purpose chicken. Um, in fact, I would say if I'm going to raise meat chickens, I'm probably going to raise Cornish crosses. And you can complain about it not being heirloom or whatever all you want. It's it's When you want real meat production, it's probably the best chicken you can do. And they don't make a good egg chicken. So I'm never going to have that great of meat production from a backyard flock that's self-sustaining anyway. But you know what? An old stewing hen is a pretty good amount of meat. An old rooster is a pretty good amount of meat. When you look at 
a bantam and you get to the point where it's time to do the deed and call them out, it's it's a big fat quail at the best. I mean, there's just not a lot of meat on them. They're also when it comes to composting and all, what makes them great on your land is they're less. I'm not saying they don't scratch, they don't dig holes, they don't do dust baths. They do all that chicken behavior, but they do it less aggressively. Which does mean if you're using them to manage compost or something like that, they're less aggressive with it. Which means you probably need more birds to process the same amount. It's not that they can't do it. Since they do it less, and they, they scratch less, they dig less, they forage less, and they eat less. And they poop less. Since they do all that less, you probably need more birds to get the same amount of work done. Um, and if you think about it, if you hired employees to do physical labor, if you hired a bunch of 155-pound guys, assuming that the 220-pound guys weren't fat guys, they were bigger, you know, just more bullish guys, they're going to get more physical labor done for you. And that, that's kind of how that works out. Um, they can be more subject to predators. I've heard this as a complaint a lot. They're more likely to get picked off. I think that's really true when they're at the age that my birds are at right now, when they're, when they're half grown. Um, and, and in my case, what I'm worried about is rat snakes. I have some big rat snakes that show up around here. We had a lot of rat snakes show up this year. We're kind of through the, the, the rat snake surge. We get it every summer. I don't know why they disappear you know, this time of year because it's still plenty warm enough for them. We just don't have as many of them around this time of year. Um, I guess it is kind of their breeding season now. They're, they're going to go off and breed. Um, but you would think that they would still be eating freebie chicken eggs. They just don't show up as much still. I have my bantams going into their cage every night inside the coop. So the cage went in the coop. If you haven't seen the video yet, there'll be a link in the show notes today so you can see that. So the cage went in the coop for the first night. Birds in the cage never came out. Next day, ducks got let out. Big chicken got let out. Little chicken cage opens. They hung out in the coop. Every night, if they don't go in there themselves, I'll go in at night, and there'll be half of them in the cage, half of them on the floor next to the cage. They're kind of bedding down. They get slow, so I throw them in the cage, close the cage up. I do that so that, especially like my porcelain, my well summer, these are really lightweight birds. They don't get constricted and eaten by a rat snake in the middle of the night. So they need another few weeks before they start going on the roost. The other thing that they become more subject to as far as predators, though, is hawks, especially your smaller hawks. Um, a lot of times your smaller hawks won't kill a chicken even though that they can because they know they can't. They can't carry it away, and they don't want to have to sit there on the ground eating it because they feel exposed. So the smaller birds, they're more likely to pick off because they know they can carry it away. That said, I've seen little hawks kill big chickens and sit right on there and eat them. It's not like you get a guarantee that they won't, but there is some more predator issue. When people talk about like predators like foxes and raccoons and stuff, I don't think it has any, any impact on it whatsoever. Those types of predators will kill chickens, period. So you have to do predator protection anyway. Um, they do become very pet-like, bantams, more so, I think, than regular chickens. I mean, my little red hen, I can just walk up to her and pick her up and cuddle her like a cat, which it does make culling harder. You know, and with given she's the only one left out of that generation, she's kind of a matriarch in the flock, and she's done a lot of uh, brooding duty for me over the years. I probably won't ever call her. She'll probably get to live out the rest of her chicken life. If you have six or eight birds like that, though, that's an expensive pet proposition. Remember, this is livestock. They're not pets. So you have to keep that 
that wall up. I'm never going to cull my dog, right? You know, but uh, I am going to have to cull some chickens here and there. I have to cull some ducks, and the more the more pet like they are, a little harder that is to do. You know, and it might be really hard for you know your your family to accept that they're eating Henrietta. So be careful who gets named, and maybe you pick one or two that are going to get to live out old age chicken retirement. And and then everybody else doesn't need to get a name, or it needs to be a name like, you know, Kentucky Fried or something. Um, and we kind of covered the positives of this, but it is true that they're hard to buy sexed or at times even known breed. If you know what you're looking for, you can often tell, well, that's a Silky, that's a that's a Frizzle, that's a Cochin, what have you. Um But it's often hard to know, even if oh, it's a cochin. Well, is it a brown cochin? Is it going to be speckled? Is it a male? Is it a female? I have never seen, I have never seen bantams in a feed store or a store like that sexed ever. I've bought them sexed, but there was a very small number of breeds. Cackle Hatchery is the only place I've found that sells bantams sexed. Period, and it's like four or five different breeds. And they sell like 50. They sell like 50 and like four or five, I guess they're easier to sex or whatever. Uh, so they will sell them sex and it's a big premium to buy them sexed. So you, it, when you're starting out, you kind of have to develop your own flock with culling, etc. And it may be harder for you to find without paying a premium exactly what you're looking for. Now, if you want to order birds... You absolutely will have no trouble ordering a Polish or a Frizzle or a White Silky or a Black Silky, like a Brahma, a, a, a Gold Lace Wide Net. Like that's all easy. But sexed ain't happening. And, and like if you're gonna don't want to have them shipped, it's gonna be very hard to know exactly what you're gonna get. And if you're buying them local, getting any of the more desirable breeds may be not 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 doable. Just not doable at all. Um, additionally, it seems like they have a lot more seasonality, and I'm not sure if hatcheries just choose to do that or or what have you. But if you, if I want to buy some red sex links right now or some Rhode Island reds or something like that, I, there's a dozen places I can order them from, and they'll be here in a week. If I want to buy bantams right now, almost everybody's sold out and not produce them again until winter. Not everybody, but almost everybody. And, and I, it's odd to me because that doesn't happen in the, like, like Atwoods is like, it's like a bigger, better in every way tractor supply. It's like five, six times the size of a tractor supply, better staff, better stuff, more stuff. It's just odd. Gun store in it. It's great. They sell chickens and ducks and stuff like that. It's almost year round. You can get something like you want. If you want Bantams, you can go in there and get Bantams. You don't know what you're going to get. Guy's helpful. He'll try to pick them out. He's like, oh, that's a porcelain. That's I'm out of Silkies. Uh, here's a Cochin. And, yeah, he'll do what he can, but but you're not getting them sexed. So I don't know why you can't, because like, they're getting them from somewhere, but it's very hard to order them right now. And the bad part about that, in my opinion, is now is a great time to start brooding chickens. A month and a half ago was better, right? A month ago, I guess you'd say, like right around September, first few weeks ago is even better because you get them quicker to that six-month period when they start laying. But if you breed, especially if you're not in the super far northern tundra, if you get chickens this week, by the time it gets really cold, they have feathers. And it's much easier to get chickens through the cold unless you get super freezing cold where their combs get frostbite and all than it is the heat. And then 
like this spring, they start laying. If you wait till spring to get them, you're not getting eggs until like now. So I, I just think it's a great time of year to do it, and it's a hard time of year to get them. That's a negative, too. Here's some thoughts I have here at the end on having a good experience with this. Number one, infrastructure first, and that's not Bantams. That's everything. If you're like, well, I'm going to need a chicken coop, I suggest you get a chicken coop before you get a chicken. If you're like, I'm going I'm to brood them in a brooder box in the house for the first two, three weeks, okay, then I suggest you get that all set up before you even look at a chicken. If you're like, well, I'm going to brood them in a chicken tractor like Jack does, then I suggest you build that chicken tractor before you get a chicken. And I don't suggest you do what I do, which is brood them straight in a chicken tractor until you get one or two under your belt and know what you're doing. And, I, and accept the fact you're going to kill some animals when you try to do this. You're going to have some die. It just it happens. But whatever you're going to need, feeders, waters, everything. And I'm not saying you might not get better stuff long term. You might not fine tune things. You might not, you know, build a better run or a bet. But you should have what you need to support the animals you buy before you even look at them, let alone buy them. Your life will be so much better. Number two, do not become a collector, at least not in the first season. It is so easy to be out there and look at any little, especially bantams, itty bitty. When you buy a baby bantam, it is ba barely bigger than a baby quail. You put a dozen of them in a two by four or two by three chicken tractor and they huddle up in the corner, it doesn't look like one real bird when they all huddle together. They do grow, they do get bigger. They do poop on things. They do tear things up. They do chicken stuff. And all of a sudden, there's 12 real, honest-to-God things running around your property versus that one little blob you see every night when they all go to sleep. So it is really easy. Like, I want a red one and a white one and a speckled one and a black one and a gray one, and I want this one. Especially, I, I know it's going to sound sexist, but you chicken gals are worse than chicken guys. Right? And a chicken wearing a chicken diaper and a chicken suit, and they got mypetchicken.com forum and the teacup chicken guild. And just be careful with it. Remember, they have a purpose. And don't buy something you're not willing to kill, both by accident and by need. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go out and you're going to buy a dozen bantams, and you're going to end up with three or four or more roosters. And you can't do that. First of all, you have a rooster beyond what you need is a useless eater in your flock. Okay? Then they fight with each other. Then they're more aggressive when there's more roosters. Then they overbreed the hens. It causes all kinds of problems. Now, I will tell you one advantage I think you get with bantams when it comes to straight run. Because so few are ever sexed, you don't get screwed over. Because I know what happens. You go buy straight-run chickens, and you end up with, you buy 10 chickens and get 8 roosters. Let me tell you how that happens. Straight runs means we sexed all these, <laughs> and all the roosters we didn't sell, we, all the cockerels we didn't sell, we threw them back in with the ones we didn't sex. And we sold them all because everybody that buys sex tends to buy heavy to the hen side. That's why you do it in the first place. Well, since they don't sex them, it, it's actually the case that birds tend to throw more females than males in a clutch. You get a lot of roosters, but you get 10, you get more hens. Since they're not sexed at all, and therefore we don't 
take the hens out, throw the cockerels back, and the pullets out and throw the, the cockerels back in, we don't get heavily weighted. Because, I mean, I bought eight Faomi Egyptians one time, and I got six cockerels. It can just happen. It probably didn't. You see what I'm saying? Okay? So that's that's a good side of it when you're going to have to do that. Um, design the system into your life and property. I know I started with that, but I'm going to come back to it here at the end. Design the whole thing to fit your life, to fit your kids, to fit your schedule. Think about the totality of it. You can and Don't let analysis paralysis get in the way of actually doing it if you know you want to do it. But as you, as you become better at it, figure out what's this little twitch that I can make, this little flip that I can make to make this all work a little bit better for myself. And understand, taking care of babies is way more work than it will be long term. Once you get your flock up and going, they don't give a damn if you're around. They like when you're there, but they don't care. They're not like dogs. You know, they might behave a little bit like dogs, and you come out and they come, hey, what's up? What's up? What's going on? Right? But, like, I would feel bad if I went a full day and I didn't sit on the floor for a few minutes with my dog and pet him. Like, I feel he deserves that. He gets to come up on the couch and get cuddled, and I talk to him, and I do that because not only do I like to do it, But I feel like he needs that from me. A dog in a human household sees himself as part of you being his pack. Your chicken doesn't give a shit. So once you get them through, well, I guess they do give a lot of shits, but they don't give a shit about that, right? Once you get them through that baby stage where they can see through their own needs, they're not a lot of work. So design your life around the concept of the adult bird need. And just accept you have to do the extra work because they're babies. Unless you're going to be a breeder, then you got to think more. How are you going to make sure you have enough mamas to do the work so you don't have to? That's the other thing. If you have a little mama coach in her silky taking care of baby birds, your life doesn't change that much other than there's some cool stuff out there to look at. When you have babies, you got to do more work. Um, enjoy them for what they are. They're usually better than TV. If you have birds, you might as well go out there once in a while just hang out with them. I promise you, just watch them. Don't interfere with their lives. Just watch what they do and get to know them. It's, it's really cool. Uh, don't put them on lights for higher production. We did this when we were in commercial egg production with our ducks, and it was okay. And it, it, we did it because to, to maintain our customer base, we had to. The minute we left commercial production, the lights went out, and that's it. Now, I do actually put the lights on in the coop at evening time, but I don't do it long enough to extend laying. I do it for a totally different reason, and if I had only chickens, I probably wouldn't do it at all. I found that if when I go out just before dark, I check everything, make sure they have everything they need, and I, I, I open up the back door of, the, of the, the coop during the day so you get airflow through there and less poop stink. Well, before I need to put them to bed, I go in there and close that back door. And I do that so that I don't have to go in there with them at night because then they all, all the ducks freak out and start running around. And I found that if I put the light on in there just before dark, that as it gets dark, when I go out, I have greater duck compliance. Chickens go in there anyway, but, but having a light on, the ducks go in there. But I don't leave it on two hours after dark or whatever. It's just, hey, look, go in there. Um, I think that you're better off getting three or four good seasons spread out of egg production than two really fast ones. 
There's no need to have a trophy hunter mindset for a backyard flock. So don't do it, in my opinion. Uh, you're just going to accelerate henopause, and that just accelerates having to cull. Um, and come up with an egg storage plan. Even though they're little eggs and all, I'm going to tell you right now, most people find very quickly that they don't use as many eggs as they think they're going to use. They have extra eggs. And then they do have the molt. They do have the winter period with lower production. And then they don't have enough eggs. And I'll tell you, our favorite way to do eggs is, depending on what they are, they're duck eggs, chicken eggs, big ones, little ones, how many do we need to make an omelet for one person? Because maybe I want eggs and Dorothy doesn't. Right? And if we both do, I just take two out. The small Ziploc bag, crack your eggs and put them in a bowl and gently, don't scramble them like, like you're going to cook. Just kind of run the fork back and forth like a figure eight a couple times until they kind of merge together a little bit. They don't have to be fully mixed. Dump them in the Ziploc bag, right, and seal them 80, 90% of the way, and what we do is we take a, those one of those throwaway aluminum pans, you know, the, the ones we're baking, the smaller ones. We set them in there kind of upright, stick them in the freezer. Set a timer so you don't forget so they don't freeze completely solid. After about 30 minutes, they'll be like semi-frozen where they, they kind of like more like an egg popsicle, and you can kind of flatten them then, push all the air out of them, and stack them on top of each other, stick them back in, let them freeze all the way. Then you can, you know, kind of tuck them into different places in your freezer and shit like that. The reason you want to do that, if you just throw them in there and throw them in the freezer, they'll be on these odd-shaped things. They won't store as well, but what will inevitably happen is, like, a piece will, like, go down between the storage grate and be bigger on one side and the other, and it'll be stuck in there and you can't get it out, or they'll get jammed into something where if you kind of do them in an organized way you'll end up with these nice little one egg, you know, one omelet packages for using eggs. And if you, you know, and if it, if you do that and it's two eggs and you're cooking something and it calls for two eggs, take one out. You know, if you do it with like one egg, then each package is an egg. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it, a little more work, but it's a really cool way to do it. You get uh, one of those like silicon muffin baking pans take your egg scramble them up again you don't have to scramble up really hard just a gentle scramble put one egg in each muffin container freeze that all the way through pop them out throw them in a big ziploc bag close them up throw them in the freezer cooking something needs one egg open it up just like bullion you can store bullion and broth the same way bone stock etc just pull just label it eggs pull it out one egg boom in let it defrost you're good to go and since they're all frozen they don't stick together you can you kind of freeze them first and then put them in a bag you can also dehydrate them and there's other ways to do it but those are like my two go-to easy stupid everybody owns a freezer way to store extra eggs and then that way you have eggs during your downside Um, my final thoughts on this is chickens in general are one of the easiest critters of all to care for. If you look at, like, with ducks, I love my ducks. And honestly, I love ducks more than chickens. And ducks are a better keystone animal for my property than chickens are. They really are. That's why I have more of them, and that's why I rely on them more. And they're a better you know, producer of a sellable product, even though we don't do commercial anymore. We still have some, some customers and all. And the customers are enough that it pays for everything. That's what we do. We Basically, we eat for free. The ducks eat for free. The chickens eat for free. 
and our customers pay for it all. That's that's all we're trying to do. We're not trying to actually make any money off of it. Um, but, I mean, I have to go dump pools every day. I'm looking at the goofuses right now jumping in and out of the pool. Um, they require more effort on my part. I can't completely automate them. If I had pigs, that would be more of the case. Sheep, uh, goats, all of these animals require more effort. When it comes to livestock for your backyard, even rabbits, like rabbits are easy, but there's more you have to do than there's less you can automate. You can totally automate a chicken coop, and you can probably see to your birds five minutes a day at most if you want to. And I think part of that is just how long has man been keeping the duck, or I'm sorry, the chicken, as a, as a, as a livestock. It, for almost as long as man has kept any livestock. And I think we've kind of, at this point, we've co-evolved with chickens and breeding over time so that they are low-maintenance. I mean, my grandparents' chicken coop, I, I, there was, like I said, I took care of them. I didn't do nothing except feed them every day and give them some water every day, open the door and close the door. Uh, everything I did could have been automated. And we had exactly the situation I'm talking about because we had no fence. We had about three-quarters of an acre. Um, we, had, we had neighbors that didn't want our birds on their property, what have you. And we had them in a run, and I would just go out last couple hours and open the run, and they'd come out and kind of patrol through the garden and catch bugs and come hang out with me and the old man on the porch and stuff like that, and then they'd go back to their thing. Like, they're, no, they're not a lot of work if you design the system properly. And they're probably that's why they're probably, for most people, the best place to start. When it comes to what kind of chicken, whether it go bantam or not, hopefully today's show helps you make that decision, but I don't think you'll regret it. I'm just going to say I think bantams are just one of the coolest little birds that you can have be part of your homestead. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can become a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, you'll get a lot of really great discounts. Those discounts will help pay for uh, your membership. In fact, most people are going to make some money on their membership every year. That makes it easy to be a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You can also do your shopping online through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there before you shop online, and no matter what you buy, you'll help support us and the work that we do. Today's item of the day are the Porter Cable 9-inch pruning saw blades for your reciprocating saw. They don't just work in Porter Cable reciprocating saws, or a.k.a. the Sawzall. They work in all of them. There's a standard blade. The difference with these Porter Cable blades is they look like a mini bow saw. They really, If you look at the tooth pattern on them, they look just like a mini bow saw blade. So what are they made for? Cutting limbs off trees. They're a pruning blade. Um, I have found that my reciprocating saw is what I go to 9 out of 10 times when it comes to cutting limbs off trees, dropping small trees, all types of things like that. My chainsaw I use for chainsaw things, all the small brush. You know, I've got these things called jujube trees that grow this fruit, and they send up suckers like crazy every year with big thorns on them. You know, once a year or twice a year I go out with a pair of heavy gloves so I don't get poked, and I cut all those off, and I either throw them through the shredder or I throw them in the fire or whatever. Uh, a chainsaw's not right for that. Cut them flush to the ground and what have you. The other thing is, like, when you're digging trenches and you end up like, here's this giant root the size of my wrist that, that's going 20 feet in exactly where the trench is, and you're trying to chop it, it's a pain in the ass. You know, little roots, you just sharpshooter them out, but like that, you just zip, zip, out it comes. It's just so much easier, so much easier, and you ain't putting a chainsaw down there. 
Anyway, most of you guys own a Sawzall, a reciprocating saw, call it what you like. And I'm just saying, if you add these simple blades, it just takes that saw that does so much already for you and does one other thing. And I've used plain old wood blades, you know, plain old wood or metal or multi-purpose blades, and it works. You get a set of these, and you realize for what they cost, they cost you know, a couple bucks a blade. You're going to use one a long time before you throw it away. And you realize it's just a better tool for the job. And it just takes that versatile tool. Because a Sawzall, everybody should own a Sawzall. If you don't own a Sawzall, you're wrong. I'm sorry you are. It just does too many things for you. I mean, emergency removal of a wall, if it's necessary, right? Um, I've cut metal with them. I've cut, if you can cut it with it, I'll probably cut it with it. So you should have one anyway. So just adding this one little thing is a great idea. And remember, no matter what you buy, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. So let's finish up with our song of the day. And remember this week, I'm doing all songs that take me back to either a specific place, a very, very specific place, like yesterday's was a very specific memory, or a specific time that, that means something to me. Because I think the music is something that often means the same thing to many people. Or a song that means something to me will mean something different to you and maybe take you back to some point like that, or at least to help us understand each other better. So today's song is 40 Hour Week from Alabama, which came out in the mid-'80s. And uh, I have to say, Alabama was the group that made me love country music. I think Alabama is a group that changed country music for the better, and I, I, I kind of wish it would have stopped where, where Alabama took it to, because I, I don't know, I've, I've turned on country music stations lately in my car and, and, and just wonder what the hell I was listening to. Um, but this was a, di a different time and a different type of music where I feel, I feel like Alabama brought just enough rock to the country party to make it better, you know. And if you if you look at a lot of 70s rock in 80s and 90s country, you see a lot of parallels there to the point where even, you know, some of the best country music artists of the 80s and 90s released a tribute album to the Eagles. That That's kind of where I'm coming from there. Um This song does make me think of kind of when I was a 40-hour-week guy that I don't, don't know that I ever was. I was always an overtime guy, but uh, it wasn't really about that anyway, this song. It was about the just regular, everyday, blue-collar people are what makes this country go round. It makes it what it is. But what this song means for me today is different than what it meant for me in the 80s when I used to listen to it and just loved their music as a whole so much. This song to me is very nostalgic. I remember in America not that long ago where we had a lot of disagreements, political and otherwise. I grew up in you know, a mix between Florida and Pennsylvania. And when I was growing up in Florida as a kid, we still had some of the last vestiges of true segregation and busing and a lot of racial tension going on. But in the end... I remember in America where the very first thing that people were was Americans. And despite our disagreements, there was a unifying piece of us. Like, we can hate each other, but right here at this point where we're being attacked or challenged in some way, uh-uh, we're together at least here. Like, there was a, a stop point. And I think it came very much around this idea that it was regular, everyday people that made this place worth living in, in the same place. And because of that, no matter how much we disagreed, there was a point at which we could all just shut our mouths and be happy to be here and in it together. And I don't know if we'll ever get back there. 
And I wonder sometimes if my generation, the people a little bit younger than me, will be the last Americans to know that America. Instead of the fake nostalgia of everything being swell and, oh, golly gee, leave it to Beaver, 1950s America, that the America that never was, it was presented by TV as something that it never was. The America that really was, that in my opinion was a lot better than the fake one they whipped up on black and white television for everybody. Because it acknowledged its faults, it acknowledged its limitations. This shit now where they're talking about teaching slavery as the core component of American history is just stupid. And But I did not learn about the, the, the blight of slavery on my country in school. I certainly learned about it. I learned the good and the bad of my country. And it was always a little piece of me that felt no matter how bad the bad was, the good was always better. And when I hear this song and others like it, I go back to that period of time in the 80s and early 90s when things were just a little bit better. Not because we had more, because we had less. Not because there was more opportunity, because there was less. Times were a little bit better because we were a little bit better. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There are people in this country work hard every day not for fame or fortune do they strive but the fruits of their labor are worth more than their pay and it's time a few of them were recognized hello Detroit auto worker let me thank you for your time you work a 40 hour week for a living just to send it on down the line. Hello, Pittsburgh, steel mill worker. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. This is for the one who swings the hammer. Driving home the nail. For the one behind the counter. Ringing up the sale. and the fields in the city streets and the quiet country towns working together like spokes inside a wheel they keep this country turning around hello Kansas sweet Bill Farmer let me thank you for your time you work a 40 hour week for a living just to send it on down the line. Hello, Miss Virginia Coal Miner, let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. This is for the one who drives the big rig up and down the road. For the one out in the warehouse, bringing in the load. Are the waitress, the mechanic, the policeman on patrol, or everyone who works behind the scenes with a spirit you can't replace with no machine?